the choruses of all of these are all completely different, despite all feeling a bit similar. In fact, I would make the claim that you could cut up these songs and put one chorus into another song, and you might not even realize that we changed the song. For instance, on Crying, if I were to sing, Now listen, all I want is someone I can't resist. I know all I need to know by the way I got kissed. You're going to say amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good, It's you could interpret that as a compliment or uh, or not. Welcome to the Echospire Song Destruct Podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. It's a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is Crying versus Crazy versus amazing versus living on the edge otherwise known as the greatest song of all time and the theme is sharps and carousels specifically chord carousels and i'll explain what that's all about in a minute uh welcome to the show ryan oh before you go ryan yeah let's preface everything with i'm not even an aerosmith fan and yet i'm about to drip syrupy doses of praise upon them. And Ryan's more of a bigger Aerosmith fan than I am. By definition, if you think that this triad or quadruple Ad. Is the best song of all time, <laughs> I think by definition, you're a fan. We'll put it this way. If you were to ask me what my top 10 favorite bands are, Aerosmith would not be one of them. Gotcha. It's it's probably Steven Tyler's singing voice. Well, oddly enough, I love his singing voice. Uh, I love mm-hmm. Joe Perry's guitar playing. I even love the drummer and the bassist. I love everything about them, but the sum of the parts is like less for me. Aerosmith is just the last thing I ever turn on, despite the fact that in preparation for this episode, as I'm listening to all their stuff, I'm going, every single song is good, but it's just yeah. not my cup of tea. Probably not into Dude Looks Like a Lady, Love in an Elevator. I, I am into it, but I'm just never in the mood for it. <laughs> uh, well, what about these songs? Uh, crying, amazing, uh, crazy. Never in the mood for them. So <laughs> l- let me get to, down to business because I got to rush through this episode. There's too much to cover. All of these songs come out on Get a Grip, which is their first album to go number one, surprisingly. Uh, they did hit mainstream success in 1975 with Toys in the Attic and following Get a Grip. Their next album, which was Nine Lives in 1997, also went platinum. Get a Grip specifically went seven times platinum. So this was their big smash success due to the album featuring all of the different singles. And in addition to the ones I've even mentioned, great music videos. I'd say the the most iconic music video sequence with starring Alicia Silverstone, Liv Tyler, various other cameos from stars are in these. Stephen Dorff. Yes, even him. This all starts back in 1970 in Boston. That's where Aerosmith got their, uh, their start. Uh, they released their first album in 1973. And they've sold 150 million albums worldwide, 70 million in the U.S., They have 25 gold albums, 18 platinum albums, 12 multi-platinum albums, uh, 21 hits that went into the top 40. I haven't seen a band yet that I've researched for this uh, podcast that accomplishes this, is that Canada buys just as much as the U.S. 
of Aerosmith, which given the disproportionate population, you know, Canada is much smaller than the US. Mm. It's weird that they can keep up and buy seven times platinum of Get a Grip, just like US audiences, but they love them up there. Hmm. All three music videos, by the way, for Crying Crazy Amazing, were all directed by the same director. There was a plan from the get-go to sort of try to tie all these together. It's not just me. It's not just the names of the songs. In fact, let's go into it, what these songs have in common. Crazy, Crying, Amazing, Living on the Edge. These are four songs that all deal with experience. And Aerosmith, I would say in general, a lot of their songs have to do with experience. So we have a sad song, a syrupy ballad. I'm talking about Crazy. Crazy was written by Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, and Desmond Child, who's a professional songwriter. He wrote Living on a Prayer with Bon Jovi, You Give Love a Bad Name. Living La Vida Loca. Yep. (laughs) Do Looks Like a Lady. Angel, another Aerosmith song what it takes and again crazy is kind of a it's kind of a waltz it's kind of this little blues ballad jumping over i'm going to talk about all the the different songs real quick crying is also considered to be a power ballad but not a, a a waltzy type although there is a waltz hidden in it and we'll get to how aerosmith in these four songs covers the gamut of every single songwriting trick every single songwriting theory save for one so steven tyler joe perry and a guy named rhodes wrote crying and Rhodes was another one of these kind of uh, hung around with the band, helped to co-write a few other Aerosmith hits. Crying, by the way, went number 12 in 1993. It was the only song out of all of these that went gold on its own, selling itself as a single. Amazing went number 24 in 1994. Crazy went number 17 in 1994. And Living on the Edge went number 18 in 1993. All their hits kind of went up in that same ballpark between 17 and 24, these four. These are the things that they have in common. Obviously, there's a motif going on with the Crying Crazy Amazing. Living on the Edge, not so much, but Crying Crazy Amazing had this theme of living out loud, which I would say Steven Tyler is the poster child for all of humanity of a person who lives out loud. And he's done it since he was in his teens. I've actually read his book, one of the best books I've ever read, outside of even the music genre. He's more of a philosopher in the book. I forget the name of it, but he goes into his philosophy and how he had it early on in his life, this living out loud mentality. Hmm. And he brought it through all of his different songs, his songwriting. And that's the reason why Aerosmith's been around for 50 plus years now. I would actually, uh, yeah, I would read that book. So all of these songs have a coda at the end, kind of a fade out. And that's not uncommon for a lot of Aerosmith songs, but specifically these four all have a codas. They all have chord sequence minor variances, and I'll get into exactly what that means. They all have uneven bars. We talked about this in past episodes, two bars, three bars, five bars, eight bars. It just kind of demonstrates how versatile they are in songwriting talent. Steven Tyler hits a high note in every single song, but he hits a miraculous high note in Crazy, a six. Lots of guitar licking interspersed with Steven Tyler's vocals. That is central to almost every single Aerosmith song. When Steven Tyler stops singing, that's usually a signal for Joe Perry to start playing a guitar lick. So at the top of the show, I mentioned the theme here is going to be sharps and chord carousels. Let me go ahead and explain what that is. So if you're talking about 12 frets on a guitar fretboard or even on a piano, you have 11 different notes in any particular key. The most common notes that you're going to be transitioning between when you're playing a chord are your twos, your fives and your sevens and your tens. The sevens and the tens are really just moving down. So if you move down 
from the 12th fret, you, you're really going to the 10th. If you move down to five from the, the, the 12th fret, you're really going to the five. Everything we're going to be talking about will be counting one through six, because once you go to seven, you're really just talking about going down five. The most common chord patterns are going to be two and five. Now you will get some threes in there, but specifically to go from three to a one, if you're in the, the key of E and you're moving from E to a G, that would typically be E minor to G. It's not going to be E major to G major, and it's not going to be E major to G minor right. either. I would call those the soft moves. The sharp moves are when you're moving up one fret from an E major to an F major, or when you're moving up three jumps from an E major to a G major, or where you're moving up four from an E major to a G sharp major. Again, from E to G sharp minor is common. That's within the typical notes played in the scale. You have the two major sharps, the three jump and the four jump, or from E to G or from E to G sharp. The one that you rarely ever see, I think we saw once inside this podcast, we've talked about it with the Beatles, Paul McCartney used it in here, there, and everywhere, is the six. So when you're jumping up six frets from say an E to a B flat, that's very rare. The Beatles do do it, and plenty of other bands do it, but it's very rare. It's the one thing that Aerosmith doesn't do. Literally every other music theory thing, and I'll continue to outline what those are, Aerosmith accomplishes in these four songs, but they don't get a six-step move. Some of the other things that are demonstrated, besides the sharps, are the chord carousels. Chord carousels are, say you have a chord pattern of G, C, D, and then the bar starts over. And a chord carousel, when you go to the, the next bar, you would actually start on a C. And if you went to the next bar, you'd start on a D. Okay. But you, you keep the same pattern. So it, like a carousel, it's revolving. So I'll get to exactly where these come in, but just moving on from there real quick. We got Steven Tyler doing everything from scat to rap, belt notes, falsettos, key changes, hidden key changes or hidden signatures. We have tempo hacking, hidden waltz, as I mentioned before, in both crying and crazy. We have multi-legged chord sequences, lots of witty lyrics. Steven Tyler's the king of folksy lyrics. Probably inside of these four songs, 30 different key folksy lyric references. The choruses of all of these songs are all different uh, bars. So one of them, the chorus section is eight bars. They repeat it twice for a total of 16 bars, but the actual sequence is eight bars long, two legs. Another chorus has four bars three times, and it has a second leg for bar eight through 12. But just know that the choruses of all of these are all completely different, despite all feeling a bit similar. In fact, I would make the claim that you could cut up these songs and put one chorus into another song, and you might not even realize that we changed the song. For instance, on Crying, if I were to sing... Now listen, all I want is someone I can't resist. I know all I need to know by the way I got kissed. You're going to say amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good, It's you could interpret that as a compliment or uh, or not. It's the reason why I will give Steven Tyler, Joe Perry, Aerosmith, and their song co-writers the credit of being the greatest songwriters of all time. They are making something that's utterly unique and yet utterly componentized. 
in software, one of the greatest uh, assets any particular programmer can be given is that their code is modular, meaning if they were to die and get hit by a bus, someone would be able to understand their code. Other code would be able to plug into that code, just like Legos, completely modular. So it makes it very easy to build with. Lego choruses. You can build some really complicated stuff with Legos and you can build some really simple stuff. That's the big compliment here is that they build modularly. So much intelligence in how they design. They understand the patterns. And yet they know exactly when to break the patterns and when to break structure, because being a true artist is understanding structure and understanding how to break it intelligently, when to color outside the lines, when that's appropriate. I was very surprised this was the same thing with Bohemian Rhapsody and um, Freddie Mercury. He sings triad melodies, despite lots of cool chord sequences, despite lots of cool uneven bars and all kinds of architectural complexity. Steven Tyler is singing pretty basic triad melody singing on the root, the thirds, and the fifths. I tried looking for him singing seventh and sixth other than Dream On, which Dream On on their first record was a tour de force in of itself. But very unlike the rest of their songwriting, it's kind of Eleanor Rigby-esque where it just is a descending bass line on E minor. They only play the chorus once in Dream On. Dream on, dream on, dream on, dream on. That, that right. whole sequence, right. that's the chorus. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, all these songs are past five minutes. Living on the Edge is 6.07. Crazy is 5.16. Amazing is 5.55. And Crying is 5.08. Real quick, Dream On, which to me is the more operatic song. Dream On is only four minutes and 27 seconds. And in fact, Dream On has a single version, which I think is better than the actual version when I think it's three minutes and 25 seconds. They omit the uh, intro. They omit one of the pre-chorus, which is sing with me, sing for the years, sing for the laugh, sing for the tears. That's the pre-chorus, which he repeats probably four or five times in that song. But it's not a chorus, one, because he doesn't say Dream On in it, and two, because it's just not utilized like a chorus should be utilized. Pretty sure that's uh, one he wrote around the time he was maybe 17. Yeah, that's his story, which would have been around 1966, 67. So yeah. he was he was being influenced by A Day in the Life. A Day in the Life influenced everybody. In fact, amazing. In the third verse, right before the second chorus, they had the swirling strings, and the swirling strings are always a reference to A Day in the Life. They're swirling in an out of time way, which is what A Day in the Life was the first to do and really the last to do, because no one does it better than A Day in the Life and George Martin's little fancy idea to, we're just going to tell everybody to reach this note in their own good time. Right. All right. Living on the Edge, written by Tyler Perry and Mark Hudson, yet another co-writer. Tyler Perry threw me off. Not the Tyler Perry, but (laughs) Tyler and Perry. Okay, let's talk about Living on the Edge. Let's do the chords first. It's a D, B minor, A, or a 1-6-5. The chorus is a D, D, B flat, G, D, which is 1, 1, flat 6, 4, back to 1, root. The flat 6 is basically moving down 4 from the root. They use going down four, going up four, going up three, going down three. They they use these sharps a lot. It keeps you in the key, but it does make it feel sharp. When you bite into sharp cheddar cheese versus mild, what does it give you? Just a little bit more bite. Music is oftentimes really just the state of being resolved versus being unresolved. And when something feels sharp, it feels unresolved, which is a setup. The payoff is ultimately coming back onto the, the five chords, the four chords, 
once you get back in the pocket, it feels like something's been resolved. The more you can pull somebody away from a resolve and pull them back to a resolve, the more contrast there is. Aerosmith, Steven Tyler, he does it with his vocals. They're doing it in all the instruments, but they all know sort of how to fall out of time, fall back into time. And they do it a lot on Amazing, but I'll stay with Living on the Edge here. So Living on the Edge, it uses a chord carousel, specifically in the middle 10, and it's not a middle eight because they're using uneven bars all over the place. Tell me what you think about your situation. Complication, aggravation is getting to you. So to get there, he goes to an F sharp minor, which is the, the the three, and then comes up to B minor. If Chicken Little tells you that the sky is falling, even if it wasn't, would you still come crawling back again? To get out of that, that's a tail. He gets up to G. So he's doing the F sharp minor to B minor. The tail begins at G. So he's going from B minor to G, moving down four, then up to A, then up to B flat again and again and again. Yeah. G, A, B flat. We're always talking about how in order to make it back to the key, you got to hit the five chord to make it back to the root. In this case, it's not making it back to the five. It's making it back to the sharp five, which is what the B flat is. So when they get to the uh, the guitar solo, that's just D, B flat, G, D. It's basically the same chords over the chorus. But to start the second leg of the solo, it doesn't start on D again. It hits B flat. So it starts to revolve. This is the chord carousel. They hit G, then they hit F, then they hit D again. So they throw in an F. And this is part of what I think Aerosmith does well on all their music. They throw in these chord variations. The chorus has been circulating around D, B flat, G, and D. They throw in that F at the end of the guitar solo. And ultimately, even to the layman, what they're detecting is a sense of versatility. So Aerosmith knows when to draw outside the lines. Aerosmith knows when to throw in a, a second part to a middle eight, which they do with crying. Whenever you think of like a, a chef who really knows what they're doing, sometimes they'll say, let's just throw a pinch of this in there. You're thinking, why? What did it accomplish? Most chefs will tell you sometimes it's just art. They don't know why it works. There's a sense of an X factor, but they have a sense of intuition and they know when to just throw that little bit of cinnamon on the meat and it's not going to be detectable, but it will accentuate other flavors. Aerosmith, you will see, knows when to pinch out a little bit of salt, a little bit of thyme, a little bit of rhyme, extra F in the chord sequence to make it work. And it provides this sense of storytelling. Songwriting is storytelling. What do F sharp and B flat both have in common with D? To get from the D to the F sharp, they had to jump four. To get from the F sharp out, they had to jump four to the B flat. Hmm. And again, jumping four twice in a row is illustrating the concept of sharps. Who's ever writing this song, and I have to think the most, the common person involved with all these songs is always going to be Steven Tyler. Yeah. He instinctively understands that jumping four and then jumping four again allows you to jump four yet again because four. 8, 12. So again, if we're in a particular key with E, you're going E, G sharp, C, and then if you jump another four, get you back to E. Rarely will you see that happen. I can't think of where it happens in any Beatles song. I didn't put too much effort into it, but just off of the top of my head, and Beatles tend to be the kings of this kind of stuff. Pink Floyd might do it, but I haven't had time to research it. But I can't think of anybody who can jump up four frets, jump up another four frets, and then jump up another four frets. Now, are, are we talking about right in a row all the time? Doesn't have to necessarily be one or the other. It does have to be in order though. So for instance, I would accept if we're in the key right. of E, 
E, G, G sharp, B, C, but you're rarely going to see that combination. If, if anything, you're going to see E, G sharp, C, and then back up to E. But it, it's hard to write that in there without it sounding like you're trying to force structure or architecture on it. And Aerosmith does it effortlessly because I think Steven Tyler just thinks in this manner and his melodies, which are triad, singing on root third and fifth. It's not like he's singing sevenths to make this weird stuff happen. Right. So if we go to crying, it's A, E, F sharp minor, C sharp minor, D, A, E, which is one, five, six. Three, four, one, five. There was a time when I was so broken hearted. Love wasn't much of a friend of mine. So the whole phrase of the verse is eight bars. The first leg is four bars. The second leg is four bars. Then when we get to the pre-chorus, it's also two-legged. Now listen, all I want is someone I can't resist. He changed there too, right? No, it's not. He's using a sharp. I thought he went to G there. He does, but he's using it in the family, as we've discussed, where D is in the key of E because of the seventh, this is in the key of A, and the seventh of A is G. Mm-hmm. So it's actually not a key chain because here's what he does. So the verse is A, E, F sharp minor, C sharp minor, mm-hmm. then the D, A, E. Then he jumps up from an E to a G, a classic three half-step jump. But why wouldn't you call that a key chain? Because look at the chords he's hitting. G, D, G, D, C, G, E. Now, as we've been discussing, C oh, I got you. is, okay. for the key of A, it's still only three half steps up. And G is only two half steps down. He's basically visiting the cousins in the key. Okay. Because G and C are still in the key of G if you're considering them as sharps. Road trip to visit the cousins. <clears throat> Honestly, when I first started analyzing it, I thought it was a keychain because it kind of feels like one. I'll tell you why I decided it wasn't a keychain, and it's because... The middle eight is a key change. Okay. The middle eight is actually the beginning of the song. Dun, 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 dun. Now there's nothing but breathing right. room between pleasure and pain. And I'm sorry, it's actually a middle four. There's a second leg to the middle eight that you only hear on the third time that they play the middle four because the song opens on the middle four without any singing. After the chorus, they hit the middle four. He sings to it. Now there's not even breathing room. Then they go back to the verse, then a pre-chorus, then a chorus. On the third time, it's just the guitar solo. And then they hit the second leg of the middle eight. Because what you got inside ain't where your love should stay. Our love, sweet love, ain't love till you give your heart away. That's good. It's another four bars that only hits on the third time they play the middle four or the middle eight. That's pretty genius. And on top of that genius, there's a key change. And the key change is hidden. These are freaking geniuses, man. You don't know it's hidden until they play the second leg on the third time they play the middle four. So let me explain. Dun, 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 dun. That's B flat, C, F, G. It's a little box. B flat, C, F, G. Now, again, this whole song's in the key of A. So what key have they taken us to? It's hard to say. Maybe G? Well, it's not. If they're all major chords... It's not a. It's not a key. Right. Maybe F. It's ambiguous yeah. until you get to the second leg. So here's what happens: B flat, C, F, G, da, 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 da. Now there's not even breathing room. It's actually a G minor because if you play it, it doesn't sound right. If you play it as a major, more evidence for a B flat or key of F. Exactly. They're playing it as a G5. Yeah, I can determine that it's a minor when I play it on my acoustic guitar. But if you're listening to the song, it sounds like a major. 
even more ambiguity because they're playing his power chords. You said it, it's a B flat, but you don't know it. You don't know it's a B flat until it does a chord carousel. Ta-da! Right. Let me sing the song. There's not even breathing room between pleasure and pain. Yeah, you cry when we're making love. Must be one in the same. He has to go from G to B flat to tailback to an A. To tailback to the A, he's got a plane down. He goes G minor, B flat. And then back to the verse A. The reason why I say he's planing down is because he is in the key of B flat. We don't know it yet, but he is in the key of B flat. To get to that middle four, it went from A to A sharp or B flat. And then it comes back down to A. Okay. When they play the middle four the third time and you hear the second leg, because what you got inside from B flat, instead of going back to A, it goes up to E flat. And that's where it gives itself away. Because once it goes to E flat, we are most certainly in the key of B flat. And it's going E flat, B flat, E flat, B flat. And then our love, sweet love, is A flat, E flat, E. Now let's understand what's happening here because it's brilliant. (laughs) The A flat is what? The seventh to the B flat. So that's how he's getting to the A flat. Mm -hmm. And then he goes back up to E flat, which is the four chord. And then he touches E, which is really a flat fifth. To the B flat, or it's a fifth to to the the A. A. Exactly. We always say to get back into the key you want to go in, you got to hit the fifth. But he's still able to feel like it was meant to be even for the B flat. Because listen to how he sings it. Our love, sweet love, ain't love till you give your heart away. He's not allowing it to resolve. He's riding the edge like a sharp tends to do. And he's making it part of the song's theme because that whole section of the song is his philosophy. The whole crying song is basically about this bittersweet, manipulative love struggle between these two people. He kind of goes back and forth on it, whether it's seriously painful or whether it's just emotionally satisfyingly tense and he can't quite make up his mind. But when he gets to that really second middle four, because what you got inside ain't where your love should stay. Our love, sweet love, it ain't love till you give it away. The whole point of this song is that what is crying? It's ambiguous. Are you crying because you're happy or you're crying because you're sad? You do both. Well, he's trying to make it all ride on this flat fifth when he gives that message away. And they had the build up with the drums and the snare and everyone's playing their quarter notes and eighth notes and 16th yeah. notes. And Steven Tyler does his classic cat scat and allows his voice to, you know, splinter into a million <laughs> pieces. Yeah. Well, I mean, he saw an opportunity to to reach the, the pinnacle, the conclusion, with all the tricks at once, right? I don't exactly. think you start <laughs> off going down these roads, being able to plan some of these things. I got to think when he's going from A flat to E flat and all these things, yeah. it's becoming a little bit more mechanical trying to figure out how do I get back home. <laughs> He's smart enough to meld the melody around it rather than I had a melody in mind. Here is the chord that's going to go with it. You know what it reminds me of? If you watch a great magician, he lets you think that maybe the trick got away from him. Yeah. Maybe he's gone too deep into this trick. He he doesn't know how to get out. And then boom. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So that's like Steven Tyler pulling the Houdini. How did I get myself into this A flat situation? If you sit with it long enough or you haven't. A good enough sense of uh, melody and just singing within the constraints that you're given, you can make it sound natural. It's when it, it's when somebody makes right. it sound unnatural that 
everyone kind of tilts their head a little bit. That's just right. a feel thing. That's a soul thing. That's- There's still math and framework involved at every step. I mean, I, I can I can explain each part of it. So I have a, a framework called the presentation versus construction method. So if you go to McDonald's, what do you see? You see a bunch of people getting their burgers. You don't see the burger getting made. They keep that in the back. So there's two lenses to consider everything. So when you were talking about Steven Tyler being able to make it all work, what's actually occurring is, yes, there is part soul. There's part intuition. But I don't think you make your way out of this trick if you don't understand that you have to resolve two keys because he's in the key of B flat. He has to resolve it using lyrics, some wit. What he's singing about there makes complete sense to why it would bridge the gap between two keys, why he would have to hit a, a flat fifth. He understands that he can use his voice as a instrumentation layer or a texture. Mm-hmm. This is all looking at through the lens of construction method. But on the presentation side, he also has to keep his eye on that and say, is this going to make someone tilt their head? Or is this going to make someone understand that everything coming together makes sense that it's coming together and that we didn't become mechanistic to make a chord sequence work? It has to make sense intuitively, and it has to make sense logically. Right. The burden of the logic falls mostly on the key signature and the chords, Mm -hmm. whereas the intuition and the vocal scat or styling that is more where the intuition right there's all kinds of architecture constantly working so let's hit amazing Uh, amazing has a middle nine so again we had a middle 10 and living on the edge we got a middle four with two different legs and crying and we got a middle nine here Uh, the chords are a minor g c f g sharp that's one of those three jumps again back up to c a four jump to d to F, a three jump to get from D to F. So that's the verse. The chorus is in C to E minor, F, E minor, G. It does that twice before it's amazing. And I'm saying a prayer for the desperate hearts tonight to hit that second leg, which he only hits on the third time. So again, amazing repeats itself twice with that chord sequence, C, E minor, F, E minor, G, before hitting the second leg on the third time around where he goes from the C to the F instead, and then descends E minor, D, G, C. And I'm saying a prayer for the desperate hearts tonight. So then we get to the middle nine. That one last shot's a permanent vacation. A minor, D, F, C. It also has a second leg to it. A minor, D, F, G. It's very minor though. I wouldn't call it another leg as much as a chord variation or chord structure variation, just like that F that he threw into the Living on the Edge solo. Now, it's a middle nine only because they do an extended bar at the end in order to make it back into the verse. You could call it mechanization, but I do believe it has a lot to do with the the feel of the song because there's a lot of out of time drum solos in Amazing. And there's out of time violin swirling, as I mentioned before, meant to echo a day in the life. And then when we get to the end of the song, which, by the way, ends like halfway through, the song is over at the the exact halfway point of the song. It only ends up going another three minutes because of the coda. And I think the video played the whole six minutes or whatever. In fact, they extended it. Just rewatching the video, I was impressed. I mean, they must have spent more, most of the video budget on that video. Yeah, and this song, by the way, I mean, they put a lot into it because Steven Tyler really did think that this song captured, in a nutshell, what they went through with all their band turmoil. Yeah. The song's about them saving their band. Interesting. The The theme of it is about fighting an increasingly marginalized existence. That's what it is. In an adventure gospel rapper. 
like a personal salvation message inside of this band dynamic, but then in a blink of an eye, seeing the light and seeing how you can make your way to the next leg of the journey. A little bit of hope. Guns N' Roses couldn't stay relevant. Aerosmith did. So the coda is C, D minor, E minor, F, and then it's got a second leg to the buildup, G, A minor, G, F. And what they're able to do in that second leg is to actually keep the notes rising. So even though it ends at C, D, E minor, F, and then G, it's still going up. It goes G, A, B. The B is the third and the G. And then the F has the C as the fifth. If you listen to the song, it sounds like it's constantly building. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. They have that building because you can find all those notes in the chord sequence of C, D, E minor, F, G, A minor, G, F, back to C. It's a trick also first utilized by Rolling Stones on You Can't Always Get What You Want, which has a very similar feel to this. It's also a Layla-esque ending because it's a totally different chord sequence, although it does feel very similar to the rest of the song, again, because Aerosmith writes modularly. Hmm. Let's move on to Crazy. So Crazy, it features a major minor chord sequence, just like we talked about with Creep. It does it a lot. So it's like A, F sharp minor, D, D minor. And you hear it throughout the song. For the pre-chorus, it starts on the five chord, E. That kind of loving turns a man to a slave starts on the five chord, which I don't think is common at all, despite the fact that it seems ordinary at first to start a pre-chorus on the five chord, not common. Mm. So it's E, F sharp minor, G, D. Kind of a simple uh, uh, chord sequence. Chorus is A, F sharp minor, D, D minor, but it's got a second leg. Just like Amazing, they repeat the A, F sharp minor, D, D minor twice. They do a little slight variation D to an E instead of D to a D minor. But on the third time around, where they go, what can I do, honey, I feel like the color blue. They do a B minor, E, C sharp minor, F sharp minor, and then E, D, D minor. So it's got that second leg to it again. It's it's really almost a three-legged chorus because they do the minor variations on the second time around where instead of a D minor, it's an E. They have a quick middle eight, I need your love, honey, F sharp minor, E, D. Nothing big. It's a simple six, five, four. They play the solo over the chorus, and the chorus features the highest note ever heard to the human ear sung by a man. <laughs> it's actually an E7. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, that note is an E6 that oh. I just sang. I couldn't possibly get to what he does, which is an E7. Then he goes, yeah, 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 <laughs> The rap scatting. That's an A6. Now, boys and girls, if you pick up your guitar and play the highest A, basically like five, six frets from the top, that's an A6. Mm. And he's not singing a falsetto A6. He's singing a belted a6 with a little bit of rasp, so he's cheating a little bit. That mixed voice. Yeah, that mixed head falsetto voice. But if you try to make it sound like that, it would sound like a total falsetto. You couldn't even fake it. Have you looked at any videos of live performances to see if he could do it? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, that's the thing that really kills me on Tyler. He sings it better oh, than the record. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Yeah, he'd be he'd be going three notes higher even. His voice knows no bounds. He's figured out how to break the confines of mere mortals when it comes to singing belted notes. I have a bunch more prepared in terms of the lyrics and the, and the textures, but there's been so much architectural talk here, and that's really 
the stuff I like to talk about because I think people can actually use it once you begin to understand music theory from a practical point of view of what these elements look like when they're being employed by the masters. So much more to talk about on these songs. But for now, I will say that we will have our next episode featuring a couple of Motown songs. I don't know what they're going to be just yet, but I did want to do my Motown episode. Anything to say on these songs, Ryan? This sort of funnel of expertise with these Aerosmith songs is sort of like the Nashville assembly line. It's it's the rock version of that where you've got one of the very best rock bands and musicians and lead guitarists and rock vocal singers with all their songwriting prowess. And then they team up with more professional songwriters. Then they get the best producers. They make it sound perfect, the best instrumentation. Right. Then they hire the best video directors. And you just have so many things where like if you were just like starting out as a musician, I, it'd be interesting to look at something like this and say, well, what's the point? You know, you're never going to reach Everest. Right. Every step along the way, there's a professional gloss going into every aspect. Think Dream On. He wrote it when he was 17. That chorus is A minor, B, C, D. It then has a second leg to it. E minor, F sharp, G, A, B. Yeah. And he's ending not on the root, but that B is actually a, uh, a five because it's in the key of E minor. So that whole sequence starts on the four chord, the A minor. Again, A minor, B, C, D, and then E minor, F sharp, G, A, B. When you have that much talent out the gate, yeah. then yeah, you you attract talent. Yeah. And it just gets better. And it just builds over time. And that was, you know, and then fast forward 20 years and you're in the 90s, 25 years almost. Right. And uh, yeah, this is what you get. Well, uh, I think we did it some justice. And we'll talk about Motown on the next episode. All right, cool. Enjoy your July. Thanks, man. All right.